0: Welcome to New Perceptions Podcast, the official podcast of the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry. The New Perceptions Podcast is for education, information, and entertainment purposes only. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and do not reflect the official policies of the entity. This podcast and the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry does not support or condone the illegal use, distribution, or sale of psychedelic substances. Furthermore, the topics discussed should not be solely used to diagnose, treat, or prevent diseases or conditions. And the reading or listening to this podcast does not constitute an occupational relationship. The content discussed does not constitute medical advice, and any specific medical questions should be directed toward a personal health professional. If you are listening to us on the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry website, it would be easier for you and better for us if you would please consider following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you will be notified when the latest episode airs. I am Dr. Tyler Chervisted, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal, and I'm joined by Deputy Editor Dr. Joe Pallara. Welcome, Joe. Thanks, Tyler. Happy to be back. It's our privilege to welcome you to this special guest interview. Dr. Charles Grobe obtained his MD from State University of New York and completed residency in psychiatry. He currently serves as an investigator for the Lundquist Institute, is professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences and pediatrics at UCLA School of Medicine, and is the director of the Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Division at Harvard UCLA Medical Center. He can also be seen in the Netflix film Have a Good Trip, which is currently available now. Dr. Grobe, welcome to the New Perceptions podcast.
1: Oh, Very, very nice to be with you today.
2: Dr. Grobe, could you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself?
1: Okay. Uh, well, I'm a, um, I'm a professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the UCLA School of Medicine. I'm the director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. And I've been actively conducting research with uh, psychedelics since the early 90s and have had a a long-standing interest that predates that, going back to the um, early 70s and late 60s. And um, I've written uh, quite a bit on the topic and I've done several um, uh, approved research studies uh, uh, looking at its range of clinical effect of various hallucinogens.
0: Yeah, and, and just kind of furthering uh, that topic there, what led to your interest in psychedelics and got you started on this path? Well,
1: I, you know, I first became aware of psychedelics growing up uh, in the 60s. It was hard to miss them.
0: Uh, it was a
1: very substantial social phenomena, especially as it uh, impacted young people. Going off to college in 1968, it, it, you really couldn't miss it. You couldn't miss what was going on. And... Uh, I found it a very interesting phenomena. Uh, in the early 70s, I had an opportunity to read much of the of the literature as it as it existed at that time, uh, the psychiatric and medical literatures, um, social literature as well, on the topic of psychedelics. And uh, I was just quite fascinated not only by the uh, the history of these compounds, but um, what had been learned about them during the uh, 50s and 60s. And controlled research studies, also from anthropological sources. And I felt there was a, a, a great as yet untapped potential that these compounds under optimal conditions could facilitate uh, healing and therapeutic responses, uh, particularly in those patient populations that often did not respond well to conventional treatments.
2: Yeah, we noticed that a lot of your initial studies uh, into psychedelics looked into the use of psilocybin for treatment of depression and anxiety in cancer patients. Could you briefly summarize the results of those studies and any major takeaways you had at that time? Sure. So we, in the modern
1: era, we really piloted the, the use of a psychedelic treatment model in individuals with advanced-stage cancer who had uh, severe reactive existential anxiety depression and demoralization um you know this is a patient population which uh you know although the field of medicine and oncology have improved survival rates often addressing their core existential distress often is not adequately addressed. Uh, There is also a fascinating body of literature from the 60s, from investigators who explored the use, uh, at that time, mostly of of using an LSD treatment model with individuals with uh, terminal cancer and anxiety and depression. They had very, very impressive uh, clinical results and were only really forced to halt their studies by the political and cultural turmoil of that time, not for any lack of positive indication as to its potential efficacy and uh, value in in, in clinical use, but rather the degree to which our culture could not handle the emergence of these compounds uh, in non um, unapproved, uncontrolled uh, contexts.
0: And you've also discussed and written extensively about the implications for MDMA. Could you kind of walk our listeners through the difference between MDMA and more of the classical hallucinogens or psychedelics and what psychiatric disorders you're looking uh, at treating with this?
1: Well, MDMA is it has got some unique uh, characteristics. Uh, it really wasn't um, explored until the uh, early 80s when it was it became uh, evident that it might be a very effective um, uh, augmenting agent in, in the context of a, of a psychotherapy, that uh, practitioners found that an MDMA-facilitated psychotherapy session, you know, albeit one that lasted several hours, still was often as valuable as an extensive course of intensive psychotherapy that could last many months or, or even years the uh, early therapists were just very, very impressed as to how the drug's unique characteristics facilitated um, therapeutic insight and, um, and, and change. I think what's particularly notable about MDMA it's, is its empathogenic qualities, which in and of itself is thought to be a positive predictor of, posit- of, of a positive therapeutic uh, outcome. Uh, And it was noted that individuals under the influence of MDMA, uh, often if the conditions were optimally controlled, had very powerful empathic uh, uh, response uh, to to the treatment. Might also say that MDMA is a uh, phenethylamine uh, hallucinogen, does not have some of the effects of the classic uh, hallucinogens like psilocybin or LSD or dimethyltryptamine, is rather unique and really deserves a class of its own. Ralph Metzner uh, thought the term empathogen might be an optimal term. Uh, Dave Nichols, uh, one of the senior uh, uh, pharmacologists and chemists in, in the world on this topic, suggested uh, employing a term which he, he, he called intactogen. Which translates out as uh, tapping into one's inner feelings. That it, what what was so I think uh, unique in particular about this compound was that even with individuals who might have difficulty articulating feelings, that it could put words to the feelings. It was very effective in. Um, With individuals who might, uh, under normal circumstances, even be considered alexithymic, which means without words for feelings. It was very effective in helping them explore feeling states and then put those feelings into words and express it to, in, in this case, it would be the psychotherapist
2: who would be sitting with them. Putting feelings into words, that's, that's an interesting. I've, I haven't heard that take before, uh, but it makes a lot of sense. Do you, you, you touched on you know, how MDMA works a little different than the classic psychedelics. Are there any unique risks associated with MDMA that we don't see in more of the classical psychedelics?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, one always has to uh, maintain a, a, a level of vigilance with these compounds. And with MDMA, I, I think in particular, you need to be cognizant that there are some medical risks, uh, for instance, one, uh, you know, albeit unusual, but still when it occurs, extremely dangerous uh, uh, potential effect would be a, a hyper, hyperthermia, a, a, a rapid uh, and severe escalation of, of, of core body temperature uh, after taking MDMA. This was generally in the context of uh, vigorous exercise and um, lack of fluid replacement conditions which one might see, let's say, in a club or at a rave, where most of these adverse events uh, tended to occur. This, when MDMA or ecstasy was more of a uh, social phenomena and raves and clubbing was a more prevalent um, phenomena, uh, the concern for malignant hyperthermia was uh, what was greater than let's say today when I think individuals have a better understanding of the need for fluid replacement and where it's my impression that uh, raves and clubbing are, are not nearly as uh, prevalent as they once were. Uh, also one has to be concerned with MDMA uh, in, in regards to uh, cardiovascular effects. Individuals with labile blood pressure whose blood pressure is not adequately controlled, may, may sustain serious spikes in uh, in blood pressure, which could potentially uh, be dangerous. So um, one always has to be vigilant about the range of cardiovascular effects and also vigilant about maintaining a, a, a normal body temp.
0: And so these unique risks with MDMA, do they mean that the protocols and the psychedelic guided psychotherapy sessions are different for a substance like MDMA compared to psilocybin as far as how they're structured or what kind of monitoring takes place?
1: I mean, I, I, I was vigilant with our psilocybin studies as well. And although the risk is far less with psilocybin you know, for something like uh, severe cardiovascular response, we, we, we still were very careful to monitor cardiac status. Um, uh, You you know, you could see in in the dose we use, which is more of a moderate dose, you saw very modest elevations of blood pressure. A couple of the other uh, studies subsequently done, uh, similar, although somewhat different than ours on the East Coast at NYU and Hopkins, got permission to use a higher dose of psilocybin, and they had more appreciable elevations of blood pressure. Although uh, for the most part, not to a, uh, a dangerous, um, a dangerous degree. Uh, one also needs to be cognizant, though, of effects on heart rhythm, particularly, let's say, in individuals with pre-existing arrhythmias, and, and among those, particularly with individuals whose pre-existing arrhythmias were not being uh, uh, adequately treated by cardiac meds. So. Um, You know, there is an effect of the classic psychedelics like psilocybin on the 5-HT2B receptor. And that receptor appears to play some role in the integrity of heart valve. Mm -hmm. So there is a concern that there may be some potential for um, some heart valve um, pathology and uh, as well as uh, aberrant heart rhythms. Every once in a while, you hear of a a case this is out in the world not in, in research context which are have been i think for the most part quite successful in maintaining strong safety standards but out in the world where there's underground use or recreational use every once in a while you do, do hear of a uh, very severe cardiac event which uh, very very unfortunate it may simply reflect the even the lack of no, this individual knowing he had underlying cardiac vulnerabilities. So um, again, with older subjects, with subjects with known cardiac uh, risk, one has to be you know, e- even more careful than, uh, than, uh, than those with normal cardiac function.
2: I think those are all good important points. You know, a lot of times when we hear things in the news, like you know, MDMA is about to be legalized and all this kind of thing, people think, "Oh, I should just go get it and try it on my own." And we, you know, kind of forget that it's in, you know, very structured environments and in, in right. clinical in clinical settings. Um, so, you know, I think mean, shifting gears here, if we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about your recent feature on uh, the Netflix show. Uh, have a good trip in which you oh. discuss the psychiatric <laughs> conditions that might be amenable to MDMA therapy. Uh, right. can you tell the, tell the listeners, uh, which disorders uh, show the most promise currently?
1: Sure. Yeah. So this is a, a, a movie that just, uh, aired recently on Netflix, have a good trip. I was actually interviewed for it about eight years ago and then never heard anything and assumed it had never, the movie had never come together, but indeed it did. And it, it's, an, you know, I thought it was a very interesting movie. Um, I've heard kind of mixed reviews, but uh, I do talk (laughs) about some of the applications that these compounds might have. And I'll stress, under optimal conditions, I always stipulate that uh, these are very controlled studies uh, that have gone through a vetting process with regulatory agencies and hospital committees to make sure that um, essentially it's going to be safe for uh, subjects. So... um, in terms of the clinical conditions that I think you're asking about, MDMA in particular, that you might want to, under ideal circumstances or optimal conditions, consider an MDMA treatment model, would be um, well, the best evidence is uh, with uh, chronic refractory uh, PTSD. There have been a series of studies um, funded by MAPS, led by a psychiatrist in South Carolina named Michael Mithofer, where um, An MDMA treatment model has been used with individuals suffering from fairly severe and uh, uh, treatment-resistant chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. They've had really quite remarkable results, far exceeding the results you see with the standard SSRI studies. So uh, there's certainly a great deal of potential there. And the Midhöfer group, for the most part, I think, has been quite successful in maintaining strong safety standards. Another potential indication would, perhaps, is reflected by a study that I I did with um, um, uh, my colleague Alicia Danforth uh, on looking at the use of an MDMA treatment model with uh, individuals, adults on the autism spectrum who have severe social anxiety. So we were targeting the social anxiety, not the uh, autism spectrum per se, but rather the reactive social anxiety. And we got some very good results there. Uh, Unfortunately, there have not been any follow-up studies. We published our results a couple of years ago, and uh, I've been hoping for other groups to maybe pick up where we left off. So far that hasn't happened, but uh, I, I think as we move forward into the future, and this becomes a more viable and uh, kind of, you know, properly funded field, there may be more interest among other research groups to study the potential of an MDMA treatment model in in this kind of patient population.
0: Yeah, kind of circling back to PTSD there, I think a lot of our listeners will know that it was recently uh, entered into phase three clinical trials, has been given a breakthrough therapy designation. Why do you think MDMA is so effective for PTSD, so much more effective, in fact, than SSRIs? And do you think that some of the other classical psychedelics would be as effective, or is this something you think is unique to MDMA?
1: You know, I um, I think we associate MDMA with the treatment of PTSD simply because that's where the funding has gone. You know, MAPS has been behind this, and and they're first and foremost involved with developing an MDMA treatment models, and they... they they started to target um, uh, PTSD as a condition to treat, and they received very good results. But that's not to say that classic uh, psychedelics uh, may have similarly positive effects on the PTSD. It's it's simply not been rigorously studied in, um, in clinical populations. There have been some interesting preclinical studies looking at, let's say, uh, mouse models for... Um, trauma uh you know the mal- mice are traumatized and then they have a when exposed to the trauma they engage in some kind of movement or head twitch but uh, when pretreated treated with a low dose curiously a low dose of psilocybin um they do not have this uh, uh this this head twitch which is associated with um with um uh uh, the the prior trauma exposure, which is thought to be a, a mouse manifestation of of, of PTSD, so um, uh, it, it's not to say that, uh, that classic psychedelics, um, you know, aren't uh, potential treatments here. It's just that those studies have not been done, whereas the MDMA studies have been done. What uh, the, what the MDMA allows for is individuals with the therapist with them and, you know, and, and and having met the therapist and had some therapy preparatory sessions prior to the MDMA treatment with the therapist kind of go back in time and be able to examine the traumatic event and feel safer in doing so prior to the treatment when individuals would have thoughts of the trauma that would often be overwhelming and incapacitating, um, and cause deterioration of function but under the influence of the mdma and with the guidance and structures created by the therapist the patients feel it's a safer terrain to revisit and uh, examine and in the process gain mastery over it and not and moving forward in time Mm -hmm. not be as overwhelmed by it as they had been previously, as manifested by, you know, lessening of intrusive thoughts, lessening of uh, of nightmares, you know, that
2: and overall enhancement of uh, of function. You know, I think as MDMA kind of continues to gain steam in the in the media, with the FDA, you know, giving a breakthrough therapy, we're starting to hear more and more about it. It's becoming more of a you know, kind of uh, widely accepted and, and and thought of psychedelic substance. But another one that is more lesser known that you've written extensively on is ayahuasca. Now, in our anecdotal experience and conversation we've had with uh, colleagues, this substance seems to be relatively unheard of, or if they have heard of it, it usually involves this wild story of a guided trip somewhere in a forest in Peru with a shaman. So could you for- provide well, a, yeah, a little of background course. of the substance to some of our listeners who maybe either haven't heard yeah. of it or haven't heard a lot of it?
1: Yeah, well, you know, may, may, have no doubt about it. And, and ayahuasca can be exposed with some very wild experiences out in the jungle or <laughs> in, in other places. So, you know, we we did going back to the early '90s with my colleagues Dennis McKenna and Jace Calloway. We um, established a collaboration with a, a Brazilian team of uh, of uh, medical. Uh, people psychiatric and psychological specialists we were invited to go to the city of Manaus in amazonia uh and war and 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 do an evaluation of the functional status of um of uh, long-term members of a syncretic brazilian religion called the de vegetal or udv or union of the plants and um we, uh, and you know, ayahuasca has been used in the Amazon basin probably since very early on with uh, the process of human habitation. Ayahuasca cons- consists of a decoction of two separate psychotropic plants that are indigenous to the Amazon. Uh, one plant is uh, Psychotria viridis, which contains uh, the uh, hallucinogen DMT or dimethyltryptamine. Uh, and the other plant contains is, is Banisteriopsis copy, which contains harmala alkaloids, harmine, harmaline, and tetrahydroharmine. Um, if either plant is taken in, by itself, uh, nothing happens. Nothing happens with the Psychotria because the DMT is inactivated in the gut by the monoamine oxidase enzyme system. However, and, and the, the banisteriopsis or homoalkal alkalis, just have minimal psychoactivity in and of themselves. But one thing they are, are monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So when you brew the two plants together, you get this remarkable synergy and it activates DMT on an oral level. And, uh, you know, it's taken, ingested orally as this liquid brew. Um, and, you um, uh, the MAOI activity of the harmala alkaloids allow for the absorption and central nervous system activation of the DMT and the psychotria. So it's this remarkable psychopharmacology that somehow or other the native peoples of the Amazon uh, managed to figure out. Um, not clear how that happened. As the reduction of scientists, my, my underst- my, the way I see it is over who knows how long period of time, maybe centuries um or millennia they people living in a particular area in a rainforest learned all about the plants that grew in their area they knew which were the nutritionist nutritional plants which were the toxic plants and, and which were the visionary plants and here you have this sophisticated biochemistry where you need two plants brewed together, either on its own is inactive, but when brewed together, just induces a very, very powerful synergy. So among uh, native indigenous groups, it became a core element of their, really of their culture. It, 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 it has helped establish belief systems. Um, it was a collective group ceremonial process. In the modern era, some uh, uh Uh, Syncretic churches in Brazil, uh, the UDV, the Santo Daime, the Barqueña, uh, since the uh, mid-20th century or even a little bit before, uh, developed uh, their own ceremonies and uh, rituals and organizational structure. In 1987, the Brazilian government sanctioned the use of ayahuasca when used within the context of religious ceremony. In 2006, it was also, um, there was a, a legal case in the U.S. Uh, actually, I was involved in this case um, as an expert witness. The UDV, oh, wow. um, um, I, you know, had established several centers in the U.S. On one occasion, a, a shipment of the ayahuasca was intercepted by customs. Uh, the DEA raided the headquarters of the UDV in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, confiscated the tea. Uh, Then the UDV essentially sued the Justice Department, protesting that their freedom of religious rights had been violated. The case went to federal court. I testified in federal court in New Mexico on on, on this case. Um, It was a very, very extensive federal hearing, presided over by a very conservative uh, Republican judge. and, uh, And I was very, very surprised when the judge ruled to support the freedom of religion rights of the UDV. So in this case, at least, freedom of religion rights trumped the drug war. So uh, that that was quite surprising and gratifying, I might say. Um, it was then appealed by the Justice Department. What was heard by a panel of the, uh, the Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver, where it uh, the judge's decision was upheld by a margin of two to one. It was then appealed again to the full appeals court in Denver, which ruled nine to five to support the the judges, the federal judges' decision. And then it was appealed for the final time to the U.S. Supreme Court, where it went in. Uh, where in February 2006, they rendered their opinion, which was unanimous again to support the original decision of the judge protecting freedom of religion rights. So, in the U.S., at least within the context of the UDV ayahuasca has uh, some some legal protection. So ayahuasca is a uh, pretty powerful uh, visionary experience. It lasts a few hours. Um, the UDV sessions are structured to uh, end after four hours, and it's pretty much worn off by then. Uh, in other areas in the Amazon basin, it's used as a part of healing rituals. Um, uh, in Peru, it's quite prevalent uh, in areas around Pucalpa and Iquitos, uh, where uh, mestizo healers utilize it as part of their system of healing. And um, and now it's um, you know it's it's established in urban centers uh, in, in in Brazil, elsewhere in South America, and also in the United States uh, because of that uh, of the legal protection it has. In Peru, I might add, it, it's ayahuasca is considered a um, national heritage and it has some protection under lo- law there as well.
0: That's all extremely fascinating there. You talked about how powerful ayahuasca is and the underlying component being DMT. And we've had, you know, other individuals in society talk about their DMT trips. Joe Rogan comes to mind most most prevalent, prevalently. Um, can you kind of contrast what the difference is between ayahuasca and DMT from LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, and those substances?
1: Well, DMT, when people talk about taking DMT, they're, they're generally referring to uh, smoking it or vaporizing it or insufflating it. Um, the, the, these routes of administration induce a very, very intense, very powerful, but short-acting, uh, hallucinatory experiences. Um, you know, a DMT experience is, um, it's, it's over and done in about 20 minutes. Uh, back in the 60s, it, it acquired the, um, the nickname of the, uh, the businessman's psychedelic, because the idea was mm-hmm. you could, you could ha- take your lunch hour on Wall Street, go to a, 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 a private room someplace, have a DMT experience and be fully and fully return and be restored within your hour lunch break to get be able to get back at your desk and get back to work doing what whatever it is you do uh, on Wall Street. So, um, so DMT is kind of in a world of its own. I should mention 5-methoxy DMT, an analog of nn tryptamine Standard DMT um, is a uh, order of magnitude stronger in terms of its power and intensity, although it is less visionary. Now, the difference between that and DMT and ayahuasca is, you know, first, as I said before, taking DMT by mouth, nothing happens because it's inactivated in the gut by MA, the MAO system. But when taking it as ayahuasca, where there are MAOI reactive um, harmala uh, alkaloids, you get this fairly powerful effect, but it's not like smoking DMT. There's a gradual onset. um, Full effects are achieved at about 45 minutes to an hour. There's a plateau for maybe another hour and then a gradual lessening of intensity and return to baseline in in four to five hours. So, um, and, and, and DMT with ayahuasca, you know does not cause frank hallucinations so that that's a if people who believe that that's a misunderstanding rather it causes more of a visionary effect so with eyes closed people often have um visions of thematic content so, so, somewhat like a dream uh, when what people can recall their dreams there's a meaning behind the thematic con content and with i with ayahuasca as well as other hallucinogens i've always i always feel it's important for individuals to think through ahead of time what is their intention what is their purpose why what's the reason why they're they're going to have this uh, powerful visionary experience if it's just for kicks and for recreational i don't know, honestly i think it's it's more of a risk than a potential benefit. However, if, if individuals are going into the experience with the intention for to facilitate healing or to establish insight or to answer particular powerful questions, internal questions they have, then the the answer to those questions or the kind of the secret to the riddle or the um, the meaning that one is hoping to acquire by the experience often r- reveals itself within the context of these thematic visions. So um, it's uh, it may not be evident at the time, in the moment, because individuals are really in the throes of the experience, really caught up in the moment. But afterwards, when they reflect back, it often becomes uh, self-evident. So, um, so that...
2: I, so given that, given that ayahuasca is legal uh, in the United States and a patient could theoretically, you know, uh, use it, you do mention that, you know, for some people there is, you know, a bit of a risk. So what kind of considerations or cautions would you note for right. uh, patients or physicians who even think about recommending? Well, it?
1: I, I put qualifications on its legality. At, at, at this point in time, it's, um, it's got legal protection when it's taken within the context of the UDV uh, syncretic religion. Uh, the Santo Dimi got a positive state ruling in Oregon, so I'm not sure how, to the degree that extends elsewhere. Uh, but it's really just the UDV which has the full protection of that Supreme Court ruling. That being said, there's never been a test case of um, of, of, of 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 ayahuasca. So you know the degree to which it can be used in treatment that probably puts it more in the realm of the underground than above ground sanctioned treatment to be in a sanctioned treatment. One would almost have to be in a research study. Unfortunately, there has never been an approved uh, research study of ayahuasca in the United States. And I mean, maybe there's some reasons for that, like the, you know, the antipathy for dealing with plant products or
0: mm-hmm.
1: even or perhaps the fact that ayahuasca has a very complex pharmacology, and our uh, drug evaluation system likes to examine the effects of just a pure alkaloid, not a mix of alkaloids. So, uh, but you know that being the case, it's not, you know, it's an open question whether there is legal sanction to use it in treatment. It, it's clearly legal when taking it in a religious context, specifically the UDV. Beyond that, I, I imagine you'd have to wait for some test cases or for new legislation.
0: Yeah, we, we published a case uh, report of a gentleman who we actually saw here at our hospital uh, who had PTSD and would take trips down to Peru every six months to do uh, ayahuasca-guided sessions. And so I'm curious if you think that ayahuasca could be used in the treatment of PTSD or any other psychiatric disorders.
1: Well, um so, so, there are also some um, preliminary studies going on in Brazil, specifically one using it. Uh, they have a placebo control model, which I thought was pretty inventive, but uh, to using it to treat major refractory major depression. So that's interesting with PTSD um, I've certainly spoken with people who report uh, great uh, relief from their traumatic, post-traumatic symptoms after taking uh, ayahuasca. I know there have been a group of uh, Iraqi war veterans, U.S. Army veterans, who have traveled to the Amazon basin and have had ayahuasca experience. They report back that their PTSD symptoms are improved, but again, these are informal these are these are not formal research studies. Uh, it's more in the realm of, um, of of anecdote. I also know of a woman who had severe PTSD who took ayahuasca at a retreat center in Peru and, and felt that it exacerbated her underlying PTSD symptoms. So that that's of concern. But I also it also appeared, uh, as I recall at least, evident that. Um, it was a fairly kind of unstructured setting with um, in, individuals in the group who had difficulty holding, keeping their own space. So it, again, it's kind of a mixed bag with PTSD. Um, I think under optimal conditions, it certainly should have some potential merit, but in uncontrolled settings, uh, all bets are off and you don't know what's go- really what's gonna happen. Or what the outcome is going to be the other area where ayahuasca may have some indication in the future if we have access to these kinds of compounds would be the treatment of alcoholism and uh, drug abuse in fact a number of psychedelics uh, appear to have um, the, the potential capacity when utilized under optimal conditions to um, successfully treat uh, various uh, addictive processes. The most impressive results, uh, curiously coming from not only alcoholism, but also cigarette addiction. That's with uh, psilocybin, a study at Johns Hopkins with Matt Johnson looking at a psilocybin treatment model uh, to treat cigarette addiction. Um, But alcoholism, uh, certainly, certainly there's potential there. When I interviewed our subjects in the study we did in the 90s, Um, uh, a number of the subjects we examined uh, had earlier in their lives been um, alcoholic or had serious drug addiction problems after their introduction to ayahuasca within the context of the UDV and their entry into this uh, religion where the, the, the main structure of this religion is taking ayahuasca twice monthly at the first and third saturday evenings of every month always in a group ceremonial context but uh the individuals i met as well as others that i heard about all their their chronic compulsive use of alcohol or other uh, drugs of abuse entirely remitted or, or or ceased after their initial use of ayahuasca so certainly would have potential there There was also a, a somewhat more of an informal study done in western canada a number of years ago um looking at the use of an ayahuasca treatment model with um first nation people who that's in canada what our native american indians are the indigenous the the descendants of the indigenous people of that area for whom like in this country alcoholism is endemic um, the observations were that following the introduction to ayahuasca, the subjects um, significantly reduced, uh, You know, some of the subjects entirely ceased their use of alcohol, others um, moderated their, 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 their use. So it, it, there seems to be a potential by that study as well. Unfortunately, that study neglected to go through some of the necessary and by law mandated uh, regulatory hoops so when the regulatory system found out what they were doing they basically shut the study down and uh, unfortunately there's not been a controlled um, carefully designed study really anywhere in the world looking at an ayahuasca treatment model for alcoholism or drug addiction Uh, the only controlled treatment study has been this one study in Brazil looking at uh, refractory major depression and finding good preliminary results. But they, they, you know, one of their conclusions was, well, this demonstrates the need for further research, not necessarily for treatment at large. There needs to be further opportunity to demonstrate both efficacy and safety. And hopefully in the future, both in this country and down in South America, or, or in Europe for that matter, there's been some wonderful research in Barcelona, Spain, um, over the years, that uh, but hopefully in the future there will be the opportunity to conduct the kinds of rigorous research that will allow us to accurately get a sense of the full risk benefit uh, profile of these compounds. Mm-hmm.
0: Could you speak a little bit more to what they were doing uh, in that? A major depressive ayahuasca study as far as placebo. We recently had Dr. Alan Schatzberg on from Stanford, and he was talking about the issues around placebos in the clinical trial aspect of, of psychedelic research. And so I'm just curious what you thought was so um, fascinating about their placebo usage.
1: Well, um, placebos in general with psychedelics are, are are fairly challenging. I could address that in a minute. But with the ayahuasca study in Brazil, I forget exactly what it was they used, but uh, they describe a very noxious uh, liquid uh, which caused uh, queasiness in the user, sounds similar to ayahuasca, but without any psychoactive effects. Um, Now, the issue of placebos is, uh, is, is a tricky one. No one has really found the optimal placebo. We used niacin in our first um, psilocybin uh, treatment of -of end-of-life anxiety and found that actually we had more serious uh, adverse effects with the people receiving niacin than those receiving psilocybin. Uh, Individuals who are very sensitive to niacin can have a very significant flushing reaction uh, have a lot of pruritus a lot of itching and feel overall very very uncomfortable for you know upwards to an hour or so um other groups have tried other placebos Ritalin has been tried or methylphenidate has been tried problem there is that methylphenidate is sometimes used as an antidepressant particularly for pseudodementia in older people i used to see it, it, it being used um what we, we, for my last study, the MDMA study, we, we actually decided just to use an inactive placebo. Uh, we used cornstarch. We just thought that would be the simplest thing to do. For a new study I'm putting together where um, we're just going back and forth with the, the, the trident, the, that, those placebos which have been used in the past, trying to see if there's any other placebo we, we might use. What you're looking for is something that causes an alteration of one's sensorium where individuals know they've taken a psychoactive substance, but which does not have profound effects on, uh, on mood, on perception, on um, cognition, as would a classic psychedelic. So, um, you know, the, the search is still on for the perfect placebo for psychedelic
2: research studies. As we search for the perfect placebo and try and, get, and we get closer and closer to these things becoming a reality for providers uh, in the United States, what uh, issues do you foresee from a clinical standpoint as far as implementing psychedelics into clinical practice, whether it be cost, liability, staffing, credentialing?
1: Well, this is, yeah, as we are demonstrating some success in uh, these uh, research studies, successfully treating individuals for whom standard treatments often don't help, then we're faced with the dilemma. How, how does this treatment uh, get implemented out, out in the real world? Well, for, for, for starters, one has to, you know, first and foremost, one has to be concerned about establishing the strongest safety parameters. That's number one. Number two, and related, one has to have very strong ethical structures. You know, it, it's uh, with these compounds, boundaries can become diffuse. Um, there are stories going back to the 50s of individuals um, being mistreated while on a psychedelic, and that causing serious, um, long-standing harm. We have to make sure that the therapists who are facilitating this treatment have a strong grasp on essential of uh, the ethics and safety that, that need to be uh, prioritized for this. I actually have an article with uh, uh, two colleagues, Brian Anderson and Alicia Danforth, coming out in Lancet, ho- hopefully sometime in the next few months, is looking at this specific article on uh, the importance of, uh, of establishing optimal safety and ethical parameters for doing psychedelic research. To that end, you're going to need some kind of certification process. Uh, this is going to be a very... This is going to be very tricky. I mean, to what degree do you um, take into account uh, you know, uh, academic degrees or uh, clinical licensure? Uh, there are individuals who have been underground therapists for some time. Some are problematic, and yet some are highly qualified. You wouldn't want to screen them out of the process. Ne- ne- nevertheless, um, you also want to, I think, have standards that individuals need to um, meet in order to do this work. Um, I actually think having a clinical license uh, uh, it puts more skin in the game uh, in terms of setting limits on a on a, on a therapist's uh, potential or proclivity to uh, act out, um, and uh, and also. You know, having clinical licensure implies you have a have had vast experience seeing various patient populations, and you've had considerable experience being provided with the clinical supervision. These all enhance, I think, an individual's uh, diagnostic skills, their evaluative skills, their uh, skills to manage a treatment like this, which can sometimes, in the course of the treatment, become rather complicated. And then, who are who are adept who are expert at helping to uh, provide integrative experience afterwards. Now, underground therapists, again, like I said, there are very, very many highly qualified. In fact, some of the, the, I mean, I have a lot of admiration for a number of underground therapists I've come in contact with, but there is the concern that the individuals without credentials, without much experience in this area, see, could see this as an opportune area to uh for them to go into and and in so doing it could create an exploitive uh scenario and, and and perhaps raise the uh possibility of um individuals sustaining harm so that that's that's one way of looking at it um uh, i think it's uh, i i think in the world we live in having more of a professional context within which these substances are studied and then utilize really enhances our ability to work with these compounds. So I'm all for that. Now, there is another issue, which is that um, as word is getting out and as there's greater acceptance, greater interest, there's a growing perception that these compounds might be the source of really significant commercial profit. So you're getting a lot of... In, investors wanting to jump in the game. They see this perhaps as the next uh, cannabis uh, industry where some individuals who got in at the right place at the right time are making a fortune, many others not, but uh, individuals uh, are investing in this area. And I think there's some, in, in their mind, some hope on a uh, return of their investment. This becomes problematic uh, you know, I think from an ethical point of view and from the pragmatic point of view of how these um, uh, ha- how the research is uh, is structured, you need to maintain a, you know strong objectivity. And like what we can see in the mainstream pharmaceutical world, when there are enormous profits on the line, sometimes the uh, the data can get massaged, the data can get twisted around, and we do not want to see this happen. In this area, and yet when we have private entities that are getting a lot of um, private funding, uh, and some of these entities are for profit, others may not say they're for profit, but it certainly looks, for all the world, looks like they are. It's um, there are some potential concerns. I always envision the you know the the optimal context would be for the for the use of these substances as treatment models. Would be in the public sector where there would be strong, you know, oversight and uh, some controls, and yet um, uh, uh, there would not be the confounding influences of private monies and uh, and investor payouts. So, you know, it's going to be, I think, interesting moving forward into the future to see how these uh, uh, compounds are are treated and, and whether or not they, they are going to be able to, to move forward. I would like to see more research out of the uh, uh, NIMH. There really hasn't been any um, therapeutic uh, research from NIMH since the 60s. They are very interested in mechanisms of action, and yet I, I am hoping that uh, they, they will open up both intramurally as well as extramurally to um, get behind research in this area because, you know, look, because, you know, the field of psychiatry, I think, has been stuck for some time. There have been no great paradigm-shifting new treatments uh, for quite a long time, uh, really, since we moved from a psychoanalytic model to a psychobiologic model. I think the, the psychedelic treatment model or the MDMA treatment model really offers a, a a very new and novel and different um, uh, treatment paradigm within which to work. And I think uh, the field is long overdue. And to that end, I would hope the uh, national funding agencies will get behind this area and uh, help move the field forward in as safe and uh, uh, well-designed manner as possible.
0: Speaking of that novel treatment mechanism that, you know, psychedelics and psychedelic-like substances like ketamine and MDMA offer, are there any areas of psychiatry or disorders that you think would benefit uh, from being studied as far as psychedelics go uh, for treatment purposes? Or Are there any up-and-coming studies that you're really excited about uh, looking at psychedelics for the treatment of certain disorders?
1: Well, I mean, there is some interest now in developing a, um, uh, a psychedelic treatment model for eating disorders. you know, again, I, I think the clinical conditions that do not respond well to conventional uh, treatment models really should be first up to be examined. And a condition like anorexia nervosa, which is devastating, potentially fatal, um, has, you know, treatments to, to the degree that they are effective are highly expensive, can take long periods of time. So having a way to augment those treatments or utilizing a, a psychedelic treatment model, I think is very important. Another area, which uh, I think is not well known at this point, but has the potential for having an enormous effect is the use of psychedelic treatments in med- in, in a particular medical context. There is a, uh, a, a preclinical scientist in uh, at, LSU uh, named Chuck Nichols, who's actually Dave Nichols' son. Uh, Dave Nichols being the eminent uh, uh, academic chemist uh, involved with psychedelics for the last 40 years or so. His son Chuck has been working with a classic uh, hallucinogen called DOI. It's a phenethylamine hallucinogen, which with remarkable potency on a microgram level. And what Chuck Nichols has found in the laboratory with uh, preclinical models or laboratory animal models, is interesting. He has a mouse asthma model, which is essentially a genetic strain of mice which are predisposed to have very serious uh, allergic reactions to allerg- particular allergens. They develop an allergic asthma. When these these highly sensitized mice are... Pre-treated with DOI, it virtually abolishes the um, asthmatic uh, reaction, and it's so the this treatment is thought to have a very uh, profound anti-inflammatory effect, and it um, and there may be some potential application for other uh, disorders which are associated with severe inflammation, other let's say collagen vascular disorders. So um, Chuck Nichols, I think, is Got something very interesting that he's been working on in his lab, and uh, and hopefully in the future we'll see interest in that area continue to grow. So th- those are a couple of uh, areas that uh, haven't got much attention, which I think have some potential to um, to really um, be uh, amenable to this very very novel, very different kind of treatment. Again, if we're going to move forward though in this area, we we've um, we've got to be very vigilant about optimal safety parameters and also maintaining um, you know optimal ethical parameters as well. So safety and ethics and with that um, and with some skilled facilitators I, I think this uh, this area has tremendous untapped potential.
0: yeah that kind of leads into this last big question for you. You know, looking back, we saw this massive backlash in the 60s and the 70s, and I'm curious what you think we can do to prevent a similar thing happening like that today, and, and what your thoughts are on the medicalization approach that we, we are currently seeing in the field of psychiatry, and if you think that'll be impacted by some of the larger scale movements for legalization and decriminalization that we're seeing in cities like Denver and Oakland.
1: Right. Well, you know, I was around in the 60s, so I got to observe up front how, really everything went off the rails when um, mm-hmm. you know, Leary et al. and others kind of took it from the clinical setting out into the world. And particularly when it was introduced to younger generations, it became a wild, wild phenomena. Some individuals had the good fortune of being in a context where they were able to take it with you know the proper structures and safety was maintained some had remarkably positive experiences others took it under poorly controlled settings and context, perhaps individuals with a lot of underlying uh, baseline vulnerability and some individuals went off the rails and i think in the uh, by the late 60s early 70s There was a perception of a uh, public mental health crisis. Some of it was kind of hype and overblown, but some of it was for real, and I think it's got to be taken seriously. Now many decades have passed since. I I, I think looking back, we were a culture in the 60s that was not ready, was not prepared to be able to to effectively handle psychedelics suddenly emerging in, in in its midst. Um, but here we are, these many years later, and the big question is, as a culture, have we sufficiently matured where we're going to be able to handle these compounds in as responsible and careful manner as possible? If we do that, and particularly if we, 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 we maintain a, uh, a good track record, establishing and maintaining safety in clinical research settings, I think we're we're off to a good start. Again, I think it really is going to come down with the uh, safety and, um, and and ethics and investigators and clinicians handling this in as responsible manner as they can. Um, you know, there is the decriminalization phenomena. I have somewhat mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, you know, a- anything that will Put the drug war in our rearview mirror and get us beyond that it will be a plus overall, plus for um, society. But um, I, it also opens up the question of individuals who are not well prepared, not well educated in this area. Get you know feeling they have license to take this compound wherever, whenever because it's no longer criminalized to the degree that it was. I think that could be kind of a setup for problems. What I'm hoping for is the um, in, in these areas where initiatives have been passed decriminalizing that there's going to be a vigorous public education program to, to instruct individuals on basic safety parameters. So um, I'm not sure the degree to which that has happened. Certainly everything got thrown off the rails with the uh, public health crisis we've had in recent months but um that that's what's going to be necessary i think for this uh, experiment and decriminalization to work out effectively
2: And we clearly weren't ready for it back then. And hopefully I think a lot of us are are pretty optimistic that we'll be ready this time around. Uh, Listeners out there are, you know, as interested as we are, are there any specific articles or resources you would refer uh, us to to read more about the topics we've discussed today?
1: Well, well, one of my favorite writers in this area is my, or was my good friend, Ralph Metzner, who sadly passed away uh, a little more than a year ago. Uh, Ralph was remarkably prolific he started out as a grad student at Harvard with Tim Leary and Richard Alpert, and really was was enormously productive through the years in his own right, and as knowledgeable as just about anyone I knew on understanding the value of, um, let's say, how psychedelics are used amongst indigenous people, plant hallucinogens are used among indigenous people, the potential relevance of a shamanic model to the modern setting, um, and uh and again people could find ralph's uh, books and articles he wrote voluminously his uh as i recall his his he has a a website i think it's the green earth foundation so you can kind of look up ralph metzner m-e-t-z-n-e-r or green earth foundation you should get a long listing of of, of his of his books and articles i mean i i've got some books out there i've got uh i edited a collection called hallucinogens of Hallucinogens, a reader, which came out in 2002. And then with Roger Walsh, I co-edited uh, Higher Wisdom, Eminent Elders Explore the Persisting Impact of of, Psych- of Psychedelics. That, this is a series of interviews with the elders of the field that we conducted in the 90s, published in the early 2000s. And then I have a textbook coming out. I co-edited with Jim Grigsby from the University of Colorado, uh, w- which is a textbook just in and the whole field of hallucinogens. It's, it's called um, Handbook of Medical Hallucinogens, publishers, Guilford Press. It was supposed to come out this fall, but because of the uh, public health crisis and problems with supply chain, access to the high-grade paper they use, it's been pushed off to the new year. But uh, eventually, I would hope, that's thats a, a book to get as well. Finally, another very topical book uh, that's been a bestseller is Michael Pollan's book, uh, Changing <laughs> Either changing our mind or changing your mind how, how to change to, your mind it, yeah how to change your mind
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah don latin wrote how to don latin wrote another book before that called changing our mind but the pollen book is highly readable it's he's an excellent writer um some of us thought there were some issues with some of the uh yeah, the facts as he put it down and perhaps his um Lack of addressing uh, safety parameters, but but I think in the subsequent articles and interviews, he's done a good job kind of making amends for that. But it's a highly readable book, and uh, and again, you you don't become a New York Times uh, n- number one on the New York Times bestsellers list without being a highly readable book. So the Pollen book is also I think worth uh, looking at. Historically, um, Storming Heaven by Jay Stevens. And another book, Acid Dreams by uh, Marty Lee and Bruce Schlain. Um were very, very excellent books from the late 80s. Lester Grinspoon, uh, a uh, professor emeritus at Harvard Medical School, wrote a wonderful book, uh, Psychedelics, uh, what's it called? Psychedelics Rediscovered, or something along those lines, um, published in 1979, 1980. And also the works of Stanislav Grof, one of the great pioneers in the field, uh, probably treated more people's patients with psychedelics than anyone else in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. Um, so that's Stan Groff, G-R-O-F. He he he's also, I think, an excellent uh, uh, writer. Very helpful material. And Don Latin had a trilogy of books: um, uh, the the Harvard Psychedelic Club, distilled spirits, and this and changing. Uh, our minds. That's the final one, which are, again, are also very readable and I think very, uh, informative.
2: Wow. An extensive list and a fascinating discussion today. So as we wrap up any uh, key points you want to leave our listeners with or things to think about?
1: No, I I think I've said pretty much what has to be said. I, you know, I'm kind of, I've been involved in this field for a long time and now, um, you know, it's gratifying for me to see young people like yourselves with an interest at, who are getting the proper credentials and who are really going to take our place. So we're going to be passing the, the staff or passing the torch on to you guys. I think, uh, uh, I'll leave you with any, 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 any advice or anything. It, it's really just em- emphasize uh, safety and integrity and the rest will follow. So, um, so, so good luck. It, the, these compounds have enormous potential to evoke, uh, healing for on an individual and a, a community and a larger collective basis. I think we, we are a, a world in great pain. We are a world that's severely damaged. We're a world with a collective existential crisis given the um, uh, current public health uh, epidemic. Um, these This is existential medicine. It's got great potential to, to heal. As long as it's treated with optimal respect, and, and, and care. And, um, and once, uh, once we achieve that, I, I, I think these compounds have a great deal to offer, to offer us, really. The, uh, the, the mysteries of the earth are, will be made manifest and really to, can be there to facilitate healing as long as the process goes, uh, goes according to the way it, it needs to go.
0: I think that is an excellent place to leave things. Dr. Grobe, thank you so much for coming on New Perceptions.
1: Good talking with you
0: guys, and best of luck. I hope you've enjoyed today's interview. If you would like to submit an article for a potential publication in the journal or you have further questions, please visit our website, Journal of Psychedelic or send us an email at Journal of Psychedelic at gmail.com. To stay up to date on all the latest information regarding the journal, please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening to New Perceptions.